Tighten Up the Defense presents Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn. <laughs> well, hello there, and welcome to the Disco Barn. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you talking to me? Well, of course. I don't see anyone else around here. Oh, I guess not. It's just that for a second it seemed as though you were maybe addressing a more general audience is all. Oh. Well, I suppose I can see where you might get that impression. The particular form of musical entertainment our establishment specializes in peaked in popularity over 40 years ago. So I'm afraid I don't get too many visitors here these days. Perhaps my manners are a bit rusty. My name is Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven, owner and proprietor of the Disco Barn. Now what on earth brings you out here at this time of night? Well, I'm afraid I got myself a bit lost. I've been driving around for what seems like hours, and my car ran out of gas a little ways up the road. Yours was the only building I've seen for miles. I was hoping I could borrow your phone. I'm afraid Ma Bell never got around to running phone lines out here. I believe there's still a payphone up the road a piece at the diner in East Benton. You might try there. East Benton? How far is that? Oh, not too far. I'd say about 14 miles or so. 14 miles? Well, if you don't have a phone, then is there any chance you got any gas? I could pay you. I mean, a farm like this must have tractors or something. I'm afraid there's very little actual farming that goes on here these days. Ever since I converted the barn to a music venue back in 74, I've had little call for tractors and threshers and whatnot. This was always more of a sustenance farm anyway, and farming no longer provides the sort of sustenance I require. But I suppose I might be able to help you out with something. I rented this place out for some raves back in the 90s, and I might still have some gas left over from running the fog machines. This place hosted raves? Sure. It's not generally my preferred type of music, but it paid the bills. And DJ Kaoki played a set that I must say I quite enjoyed. Of course, I was tripping pretty hard at the time, and I don't mean the light fantastic. Although I was doing a considerable amount of dancing as well. Now, just where was it you were trying to get to anyway? And what are you doing in these paths to begin with? Unless I miss my guess, you're not from around here. And frankly, you don't seem like the sort to come up here gawking at our foliage. No, I suppose not. My name's Tracy Angstrom. I'm a reporter for the Manchester Union Leader. I was doing a story about the effects of tariffs on the local economy. The decreased exports have caused a glut in the domestic fish market, and the resulting unemployment can lead to increased drug use, which in turn attracts a rather unsavory element to the area, hoping to capitalize on that. Unsavory? Organized crime. Oh. Huh. I usually find gangster types quite savory. Not that I'd mind otherwise. I've always had a bit of a sweet tooth. Uh, okay. Anyway, I was asking around in Portland, and some of the locals told me that there was a bar around here that was popular with the lobstermen in the area. Well, Tracy, I'm afraid those city boys were having a bit of fun with you. There aren't any bars around here for miles, and even if there were, we're a bit far from the coast to attract many fishermen. Of course, you didn't say fishermen, did you? You said lobstermen. Now, by that, I suppose you mean men that catch lobsters? Yeah, of course. 
What else would I mean by lobster men? Oh, nothing, I suppose. Come on, you'd better step inside. Let's see if we can find you that gas can. Enter freely and of your own accord and all that. It is starting to get a bit chilly out here. I really can't thank you enough for this, Mr. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, what was it again? I'm a little lightheaded all of a sudden. Shadow Maven. Ezekiel P. Shadow Maven. But you can forget the mister. Call me Ezekiel. Mr. Shadow Maven lives in the darkest bowels of hell. Or Basto. I forget which. Uh, okay. Um, Ezekiel. What does the P stand for? Pints and quarts. As in mind yo, or you might find yourself missing a few. Heh. <laughs> That's a little vampire humor. I'm a vampire. I'm sorry, you're a, you're a what? A vampire. See? I got these fangs here and everything. <laughs> but I don't like to let that define me. I'm also a farmer, a disco enthusiast, and a baseball fan. Go Sox. A, a vampire? Uh, why aren't I freaking out? Well, I could say it's a testament to your character. But it's probably got a bit more to do with my mesmeric thrall. See, as soon as you set foot in my barn, you became subject to my vampiric powers. Right now, I'm using my thrall to calm you down a bit. Here, I'll release it. Ah! Ah! Oh, hush up now. There, that's better. <sighs> as you can imagine, the thrall comes in quite handy. Helps suspend disbelief and dampens the abject horror people tend to experience when they're forced to confront my dark nature. It also makes for a pretty decent party drug. So, Ezekiel, uh, what do you want with me? Well, for now, just a bit of conversation. If everything's as you say it is, then after we talk for a bit, there's no reason why you shouldn't leave here with a can of gas having no memory of our little chat. Mind you, It'd be the first time in a while that somebody left the barn with more liquid than they came in with. Heh. <laughs> Your little article puts me in the mind of a story about a different sort of lobsterman. Would you like to hear it? Do I have any choice? Of course. I could just drink your blood and leave your body a desiccated husk. As I said, I don't get many visitors, and I do like to spin a yarn. But I'm also a bit patched, so either way... Um, I'd love to hear your story. All right, then. I call this tale The Disco Call of Cthulhu, or The Twerking Fear. The year was 1977. Since I had converted the barn to a nightclub a few years prior, disco fever had swept the nation, and the supernatural community of rural New England was no exception. The disco barn had quickly gained a reputation as sort of a spiritual oasis where like-minded creatures could get together and let their proverbial hair down. They knew as long as they respected the house rules, no one would bother them, and they could party and carry on to their heart's content. My partner Larry had moved up from Boston to help me run the place for a while. Larry was a werewolf, so he could handle the daytime operations of the barn. He'd also head down to the city periodically to bring back new records, which were difficult to come by in these parts and always in high demand. We'd had a busy summer, 
but things tended to slow down a bit in the autumn, so Larry suggested I sign up for a weekly nighttime slot at the radio station over in Guilford to try to drum up some business. I'd always been a bit of a motor mouth, so I took to the job of a radio DJ like a duck to water. I even had my own DJ name. You're listening to WBLD Guilford. Coming up next, Night Sounds, featuring DJ Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven. Well, hello there, and welcome to Night Sounds. This is DJ Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven. I'm coming at you with the most sizzling platters and the snappiest patter. I hope you like this next song. It's pretty good. Here's first choice with Dr. Love. Great stuff, Zeke. Hey, you've got a call on line one. They said they'd like to talk to you off the air. All right, then. Hello there. This is DJ Ezekiel P. Shadow Maven speaking. Uh, yes, hello, Ezekiel. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. I, I've got a problem I was hoping you could help me out with. Well, under normal circumstances, sticking my neck out isn't exactly the sort of thing I'm partial to doing, more the sort of thing I'd encourage others to do. But, seeing as you're a fan, what can I do for you? Uh, Well, Ezekiel, my name is Gertrude, and I'm a kobold, Uh, more specifically a clubautoman. I watch over our fishing boats called Sylvanias that runs out of Booth Bay Harbor, it's not a particularly large boat, just a four-man crew, but it, it keeps me busy. The problem is, one of our sternmen went missing o- almost a week ago. Marvin has had his issues in the past, but he's always been a reliable crewman. At first I thought he was just probably sleeping off a bottle of Alan's coffee brandy somewhere, but when he didn't show up for work for the third day in a row, I started to get concerned. That's when I stopped by his house. The window was smashed. Some of his clothing was missing, but other than that, there were no signs of a robbery. Well, Gertrude, that's all very interesting, but I'm afraid I don't see how I fit into all of this. I know you clubautomen are protective of your crewmen, but I can assure you, I didn't have anything to do with this fella's disappearance. With my blood pressure, I'm not supposed to have too much salt, so I'm afraid sailors are off the menu. Oh, I wasn't accusing you of anything like that. It's just that, well, I was talking with some of the other kobolds, and the word is that your disco barn is considered sort of a neutral territory for us less conventional New England residents. I was just wondering if you would mind asking around a bit. Maybe I could put up some flyers or something. If one of your clientele has fed on Marvin, well, I'd, I'd just like to know us all. Well... I suppose it couldn't hurt to ask around a bit, but Gertrude, if you're seeking vengeance, you'd best be doing it elsewhere. We're quite serious about the five F's when it comes to the disco ban. It's how we've been able to maintain our congenial atmosphere. The five F's? It's what we call our house rules. No fighting in the ban, no feeding in the ban, no flapping your gums about the ban, no following anybody leaving the barn, and no Francis in the barn. Francis? Oh, we was this warlock who kept trying to ensorcel us to get us to play Backman Turner Overdrive. We all got pretty tired of Frank's garbage and decided he was no longer welcome. 
I can assure you, I have no intention of violating any of your Fs. I am not seeking vengeance. Merely closure. Well, that's good to hear. Tell you what, Gertrude, why don't you swing by the barn tomorrow just after sunset? We'll see if we can find any information about your... Marvin, was it? Oh, thank you so much. I know it is a long shot, but I am at my fifth end. I I will see you tomorrow. All right, then. Oh, and just one more thing, Ezekiel. Would you mind playing Boogie Oogie Badger? I I just love that song. Of course, dear. The next evening started out ordinarily enough. Larry and I were preparing the barn for the evening's festivities. Sweeping up the dance floor, restocking the barn, what have you. A local crackpot had run up a fairly significant bar tab over the course of the last couple of years. He seemed an agreeable enough sort, so we decided to let him pay off part of his debt by working as a bar back and running the occasional errand for us. This arrangement worked out all right for the most part, but there were certainly times when he would sorely test our patience. This was one of those times. Oh, for hell's sake. Stephen King, would you be careful over there? Sorry, Mr. S. I swear, if it weren't for our house rules, Larry wouldn't be the only thing around here that was half drunk. Huh? I mean that if we didn't have a rule against it, I'd drink you. Oh, never mind. Just be careful is all. And speaking of our house rules, don't you go forgetting about the third F. No flapping your gums about this place and your little stories. Oh, cut him some slack, Zeke. He's published three books so far and he hasn't mentioned us yet. Huh. I still can't believe Francis convinced you to use the pen name Backman as a tribute to BTO. I think he must have ensorcelled me or something. <laughs> you ensorcelled all right, Stephen King. Ensorcelled by the siren song of You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. <laughs> That'd be Gertrude. Larry, would you mind getting the door? Sure thing, Zeke. Hi, you must be Gertrude. Oh, hello. Ezekiel? You sound so different on the radio. Ha! He wishes. No, I'm, I'm Larry. Zeke's over by the bar. Come on in. Uh, freely and of your own so forth, if uh, that's a thing for you. Nice to meet you, Larry. And call me Gert. Well, hello, Gert. I explained a bit about your situation to Larry and Stephen King over here. They've agreed to ask around about your Marvin. Do you have those flyers you were talking about? I'd be happy to put a couple up over by the DJ booth. The Selkies and Water Horses tend to congregate over there when Seamus is spinning records. And seeing as your fella disappeared out on the coast, I figured they'd probably be amongst the first to know. I could also put some up back by the outhouses. I'm afraid we don't have any indoor plumbing. Running water is a bit of a deal-breaker for a certain percentage of our clientele. Actually, I don't believe any of that will be necessary after all. Uh, You see, after we talked last night, I, I found Marvin. He's waiting outside. Well, congratulations, Gert. Bring him on in and I'll pour you a celebratory beverage. What are you drinking? Uh, thank you, Ezekiel. It's kind of you to offer, but it's a bit more complicated than that. I fear that celebration might be a bit premature. Gert, how'd you get this Marvin to come out here with you? 
I thought that sailors couldn't see the clabouterman who protected their ship. Yes, that is generally the case, but, well, this appears to be a rather unique situation. Maybe it would be better if Marvin explains this himself. Is, is it all right if I go get him? Sure. I'm sorry, guys, but what's a clabouterman? It's a type of a kobold. They watch over ships and repair them and protect their crew. But, as Larry pointed out, normally the sailors that they guard can't see them. At least not unless they're about to die. Ezekiel? Larry? Stephen King? This is Marvin. Hello. Hello, Marvin. It's nice to meet you. Now, what seems to be the trouble? Just let me remove my hat and trench coat and you can see for yourself what I've become. There. So is what you've become a, a nudist? Zeke, he's a giant lobster. Well, sure. That much was already obvious. Frankly, Marvin, that hat and coat weren't exactly the impenetrable disguise you seem to imagine them to be. You're not shocked and horrified? By a giant lobster? Look, Marvin, not to be reductive, but I'm a werewolf, Zeke's a vampire, and Stephen King over there is an author of genre fiction. We're hardly in a position to criticize. Mind you, I did think it was a bit odd that Gert hadn't mentioned that you were an enormous lobster. But I figured that was none of my business. I take it then that this is a relatively new condition? Yes, I used to be a perfectly ordinary lobsterman. At least I think I was. My memory from before I transformed is a bit fuzzy. But now I'm no longer a lobsterman. I'm a... well... Lobster man? Exactly. Look, Marvin, I get it. Transformations can be terrifying until you get the hang of it. When I first turned... I was totally freaked out. I used to wake up in a field, naked and covered in blood, just shrieking like a frickin' banshee. Uh, but over time, you get used to it, and you learn how to control yourself. <laughs> Lawrence, you woke up in a field this morning, naked, covered in blood, and shrieking like a banshee. Yeah, but that's just because I know how to party. <coughs> Come on, Marvin. I'll pour you a beer, and you can tell us about what happened. What, you get bit by a whale lobster? A whale lobster's a thing? No, at least I don't think so. Look, it all happened about a week ago. As I said, the memories from before I turned are a bit hazy, but I had the night off, and I was walking along the shore when I spotted a lobster pot that had washed up in the surf. There didn't seem to be a buoy attached to it, and I couldn't see a license number on the side, so I figured it probably belonged to poachers. I was about to let the lobsters out and stove up the trap for kindling when I saw a glint of light reflect off of something inside. I went in for a closer look and saw that inside the trap was the biggest lobster I'd ever seen. He wasn't anywhere near the size I am now, but he must have been at least a 14-pounder. But the weirdest part was, draped around his neck was a beautiful, ornate necklace with a large purple jewel glittering in its center. The jewel was unlike anything I'd ever seen, and I found myself drawn towards it, unable to focus on anything else but the soft moonlight reflecting off the facets of the gemstone surface as the necklace swayed at the rising tide. As though I was watching myself in a dream, I'd reached towards the jewel, heedless of the lobster it adorned. I'm not entirely sure what happened next, but there was a flash of light and a sharp pain, like a jolt of electricity. The next thing I knew, it was morning, 
The first rays of sunrise were cresting over the horizon, and there was a strange pale man in flowing purple robes standing over me. From his outstretched hand was hanging a very necklace that I had last seen around the lobster's neck. It was then that I first looked down and saw myself as the creature you see before you today. I must have been in a state of shock because I don't remember screaming. When my mind cleared up a bit, I noticed that the man had been speaking to me for quite some time. Thanks to you again, Marvin Turklewood. You have my deepest gratitude. Through your noble sacrifice, you have freed me from the eldritch curse which had kept me imprisoned low these many years. What happened? You wish to hear my tale again? Very well, my benefactor. So be it. My name is Alhazred, and I am a priest and scholar in the ancient and venerable realm that surface dwellers know of as Atlantis. Through my diligence and cunning, I rose quickly through the ranks of the clergy, eventually achieving the exalted rank of Grand Vizier. But alas, my successes had not gone unnoticed, and despite having achieved my rank through merit and ecclesiastical dedication, there were those who felt slighted by my advancement and sought to benefit from my downfall. I endeavored to rise above these petty jealousies and not be distracted by the bitterness of my would-be rivals, focusing instead on my research. My efforts bore fruit, and I unearthed several long-forgotten rituals which would greatly benefit our order. I was preparing for one of these ceremonies when I received an anonymous gift, this very amulet you see before you. Of course, I realize now that I ought to have been suspicious, but how could an antiquarian like myself think to refuse such a singular relic? Little did I suspect that one of my adversaries had placed a hideous curse upon this bauble, and no sooner did I place it around my neck than I was metamorphosed into the wretched creature you encountered last night. And so I remained, searching the oceans for a cure, slowly descending into madness and despair, praying that one day I would be freed of my curse. And so I was. Thanks to you, Marvin Turklewood. Well, well congratulations, I guess, but, but what am I supposed to do? Ah, yes, I was getting to that. It seems that when the curse was broken, there was some metaphysical backlash that seems to have rebounded onto you, and perhaps even intensified the initial hex. But fear not, for although it may take all my cunning and may tax the limits of my considerable mystic expertise, I believe I can cure your condition. Well, can't you just pop that necklace on me and then take it off again? Would that it were that simple, friend Marvin. No, all sorcerous energy has been drained from this once puissant stone. It is now a harmless, though attractive, bauble. See, as the light reflects off of it, even eyes like yours, untrained in the ways of ancient lore, can see that it is bereft of magical powers. Okay, okay, well, well how are you going to fix me? As I said, it can be done! But we must act quickly. With the amulet's energy expended, if you are not restored to your original shape within three weeks' time, the changes will be permanent. You must gather three ancient objects of great and hidden power. 
While you are questing for these relics, I will return to the libraries of Atlantis to research the necessary ceremony. And we will meet back at this very spot at midnight, three weeks hence. Oh, Hazarin told me about the items I would need to seek out, and he headed back to Atlantis. Already the details of my human life were starting to fade. I had to search through the tatters of the pants that were strewn about my thorax and find my license to even remember where I lived. Fortunately, the address I found was not far from the rocky beach where I woke up. My keys must have been lost during the transformation, so I had to smash a window to get these clothes and some provisions. I realized that the damaged window would attract unwanted attention, even from my reclusive neighbors, so I stashed my belongings in the local library. As Ezekiel noted, my disguise would hardly stand up to close scrutiny, but it would give the casual observer the excuse to do what comes naturally to any main resident, keep their head down and mind their own business. I shimmed the library's back door so that I would be able to come back that night and return to the sea to hide out while the town went about its daily business. And that's how I spent the last week, researching the rare objects that Al-Hazarid had tasked me with retrieving during the night and going back to the sea each morning. I found that in my new form I required little sleep, so during the day I had taken to hanging out under my old boat, the Lavinia, and eavesdropping on my former crewmates. This morning I decided to try clinging to the ship's hull to see if I could overhear anything about my old life that might jog some memories. That was when Gert found me. Fortunately, I had the license I found tucked into my carapace, which helped convince her that I was who I said I was. Not that I would have had a better explanation for a six-foot-talking lobster clinging to the bottom of my boat. Anyway, that more or less brings us up to speed. So, what do you think, Ezekiel? Can you help us? Well, I'd tell her not knowing. But I suppose over the years I've picked up a bit of arcane lore. Why don't you tell us about these mystical what's-its you'll be looking for in your little scavenger hunt, and I'll let you know if anything rings a bell. Well, the item that I've got the best lead on is the one I spent the most time researching. It's a book called The King in Yellow. It's an ancient play that's rumored to provoke instant madness in anybody who reads past the first act. I searched the microfiche at the Booth Bay Harbor Library, and it turns out that the only known copy surfaced recently. It's being kept in the Rare Books Library at Miskatonic University in a town called Arkham, Massachusetts. Larry, didn't you go to Miskatonic University? Nah, I went to Miskatonic Tech. It's on the other side of Arkham. More of a party school. Probably wouldn't have bothered going, but I got in on an athletic scholarship. Well, Lawrence H. Talbot, aren't you just full of surprises? You certainly never mentioned your athletic career to me before. Well, I didn't have much of one. And college recruiter caught wind of my family history and got it into his head that all werewolves are great at basketball for some reason. No idea where he got that notion. I had a cousin out in Oregon who's not bad, but that's about it. I'm frickin' terrible. Ball starts bouncing, my canine nature just kicks in, and I start chasing that thing all over the court. Fucks all the hell up whatever kind of defense the coach is trying to run. I'll tell you that for nothing. Every once in a while, they'd put me in as an enforcer, but I ended up spending most of my college career sitting at the end of the bench. Ah, I got no regrets, though. The boosters threw some wicked good parties. Matter of fact, I was planning on heading down there next weekend for homecoming. If you wanted, while I'm there, I could pop across town to MU and grab the book while everybody's watching the game. Oh, Larry, that would be wonderful. Thank you. 
Not a problem. I'm always happy to mess with those stuck-up fats at Miskatonic U. <laughs> well, that's all right, then. Mavin, what else does this Alahazarid fella have on his shopping list? He said he needed a ceremonial statue from... Uh, wait, I, I wrote this one down. The Esoteric Order of Dagon. Wait, wait a minute. I've heard of that. Isn't that from those H.P. Lovecraft stories? Oh, come on, Stephen King. Don't tell me you read that garbage. Well, sure. In high school, I couldn't get enough of that stuff. You're not telling me it's real, are you? Well, of course it is. Howard didn't have a creative bone in his pasty little body. Wait a minute, Zeke. You knew H.P. Lovecraft? Well, sure. Although not by choice. About 50 years or so back, he came up here poking around and asking questions. Most of us wouldn't give him the time of day. Do you have any idea how hard it is to stand out as a racist in 1920s New England? Well, Howard managed to clear that bar. Plus, for someone so puritanical, he was awfully interested in what would happen if people started hooking up with ancient sea creatures. I always got the impression that if a horde of fish people started teeming out of the ocean, Cthulhu wouldn't be the only thing rising if Howard was around. Hey, didn't we have a Cthulhu in here the other night? What? No, we didn't have any Cthulhu in here. Are you sure? Larry, your average Elder God is about the size of Fenway Park. I think I'd know if we had one in here. Well, and who was that guy who was up from Saugus? Who was getting all swerved on Allens and Milk? Oh, that was a Gill man. What, like the Gilmans who live over in Skowegan? No, that's just a last name. A Gill man is one of those creature from the Black Lagoon looking fellas like we had in here the other night. Although, come to think of it, I believe Martha Gilman's eldest might be a Gill man. That's probably just a coincidence. Ahem. <clears throat> I believe we were discussing the esoteric order of Dagon? Sorry, Gertrude. And Dagonites, was it? Nice enough fellas, I suppose. Wait, you've had dealings with the cult of Dagon? Oh, sure. They run out the conference room up in the loft second Thursday of every other month. Those guys are the esoteric order of Dagon? I thought they were just Rotarians. Honestly, there's not that much difference near as I can tell, Stephen King. Sure. They used to do dark sacrifices and perform elaborate rituals to appease the Deep Ones, but nowadays they mostly just do fundraising events. They donate an awful lot of money to the Lions Club. Vision Care seems to be a bit of a pet project of theirs. I think their reasoning is that if people can't clearly see the Elder Gods when they rise from the Deep, then they won't be driven properly mad by them. Makes a fair bit of sense, I suppose. I gave them a set of my old bifocals last year. I think they left a box of decorations upstairs after the last meeting. I'm almost certain I saw a statue in there. If you wanted to borrow it for a night, I don't suppose they'd need to know about that. You just make sure your friend Al Hazard brings it back when he's done his all. Oh, thank you so much, Ezekiel. And thank you, Gertrude. You were right about coming here. Thanks to you and Larry and Stephen King here, I just know I'll get back to my old self in no time. It will be good to have you back aboard the Lavinia, Marvin. Okay, okay, easy, buddy. Let's not all start licking our own keisters yet. It's still the last one of these strange and eldritch doohickeys to account for. How about you tell us about that one, Marvin? There's really not all that much to tell. It's the item about which I was able to find out the least. 
All that Alahazred was able to tell me was that it's a chunk of meteorite that crashed in 1882 in a place called Gartner's Farm in Massachusetts. I checked the state charter, and the only property fitting that description got torn down back in 1908. There were allusions to vague rumors about strange vegetation growing there a long time ago, but that seems to have cleared up after the farm was gone. It's now at the Moolah's Market Basket. There haven't been reports of anything unusual in that area for over 50 years. Well, I'm sorry to say I won't be of much assistance to you on that one, Marvin. Neither geology nor astronomy has ever been a particularly strong suit of mine. But, if you'd like to hang around the barn while you look into matters, you're more than welcome. There's a salt water tank down cellar. We haven't used it much since we had that mermaid singer here last August, so you should feel free to make yourself comfortable. And while it might not rival the facilities of the library of a big city like Booth Bay Harbor, you can help yourself to any of the tomes and grimoires that I've accumulated over the years. Thank you so much, Ezekiel. You've been so generous. I'm not sure what I would have done if it wasn't for you and Gertrude. Oh, I'm sure you would have figured something out. You strike me as an uncommonly resourceful crustacean, Marvin. It's kind of you to say so. And so for the next week, Marvin stayed at the barn and studied the text in my collection, while Gertrude would go into Portland and pour over the newspaper articles on microfiche in the library. At night, they would meet back up and compare notes. Progress was slow, but they were enjoying each other's company. Marvin had almost no memories of his former life as a sternman on the Lavinia, but Gert found his knowledge of the bay and the local wildlife were nearly encyclopedic. As for her, the life of a clabouterman was often a lonely one, watching over and protecting a crew of sailors who could neither see nor hear her. Gert seemed to appreciate having someone to talk to for a change, especially someone who shared her love of the sea. Over the course of the next week, they developed an easy rapport, and began to look forward to seeing one another at the end of each day. One evening, over a couple of gansets, Gert confessed that the day before he initially disappeared, she was almost certain that Marvin had caught sight of her aboard the Lavinia. Seeing his boat's clabouterman was normally a sign that a sailor was not long for this earth, so Gert had been surprised and relieved to find that Marvin was still alive, regardless of his form. Admitting that you are glad another person isn't dead is one of the most powerful and intimate expressions of friendship a New Englander is capable of uttering. After Gert's declaration, the two friends sat in a kind of comfortable silence for the rest of the evening while enjoying their beers. The next day at the library, Gertrude stumbled upon an interesting discovery. Shortly after the turn of the century, a piece of land had been sold just outside Millinocket to a family named Gardner who listed their previous residence as Massachusetts. No taxes had ever been collected on the property, and there was no other paperwork to corroborate the sale, but it was the only lead they had as to a possible location of the meteorite. Later that night, Marvin and Gertrude asked around the barn and learned that for generations, even the most fearful of supernatural beings had been avoiding that particular parcel of land that Gert's discovery seemed to indicate the Gartners might have purchased. Wasn't much to go on, but a couple of days later, Gertrude and Marvin borrowed Stephen King's pickup truck and drove out to the wilderness outside Millinocket to investigate. Marvin, it seems as though we have been trudging along on these overgrown logging trails for hours. 
I had not realized we would need to park Stephen King's vehicle so far from our destination. I know your current form was not designed for land travel. Do you need to stop to rest? Quite the contrary, Gert. As long as we're in this secluded area and I don't need to maintain the illusion of bipedal movement, I have no problem keeping up a brisk pace. I actually find it rather refreshing. Although I notice the same doesn't seem to be true for the rest of the local fauna. What do you mean? My antennules haven't been able to detect any animal life whatsoever for the last three quarters of a mile. It's as though the creatures around here have developed some sort of genetic memory warning them away from this region. Or else it's very smelly here. Is it very smelly here? My, my sense of smell doesn't really function well on land. It actually is getting a little smelly here. It's sort of a rotten putrid smell, but with an acrid, almost chemical twinge to it. It's really quite unpleasant. Well, it certainly doesn't seem to be hindering the plant life. These vines and brambles are enormous. Look at those blueberries. They're the size of grapefruits. Gertrude went to pick one of the berries that Marvin had indicated, but the oversized fruit crumbled to dust as soon as she touched it. A hideous stench filled the air with a more intense version of the aroma Gert had previously described. Oh, God, I, I think I got some in my mouth. Oh, oh. Even I can smell that, Gert. If you want to turn back, I won't blame you. There's something that isn't right about this place. You've done so much for me already. I I'd hate for you to put yourself in any further danger. Why don't you go wait back by the truck? Nonsense, Marvin. What if there's something up the front that requires the use of opposable thumbs? Your chauvinistic attempt at chivalry is well-intentioned but misplaced. It is 1977. Besides, I'm the one who is supposed to be protecting you. Gert, we're a long way from the Lavinia. And it's not chivalry. It's just that, well, I get the impression that even before the curse, Marvin Turklewood didn't exactly have a lot of friends. I, I just hate for anything to happen to you is all. Besides, you don't have a hardened chitinous exoskeleton to protect you. Well, it looks as though in a couple of weeks you won't have one either, Marvin. Look at that sign up ahead. I get the feeling that your luck is about to change. Marvin aimed his eye stalks in the direction Gerd had indicated and saw a rotting handmade sign. Barely legible letters scarred the decomposing wood. Marvin deciphered them and read them aloud with a growing sense of hope that it is unlikely that particular sign had ever inspired before. Gardner's Farm 2. Keep out. Gert, do, do you think this is it? There's only one way to find out. Look, there appears to be the remains of a farmhouse up ahead. Let's go see if we can find your space rock. The two friends moved slowly towards the dilapidated building, but their approach was not an easy one. As they got closer, the very land itself seemed determined to keep them from exploring. At first, they thought it must have been their imaginations, but it was soon clear that the strange vegetation that smothered the property was attacking them. Small tendrils of vines entwined themselves around Marvin's legs and claws, and were Gertrude not an experienced seafarer whose calloused hands were quick to untie knots, their progress and perhaps their very lives might have ended right then and there. No sooner had she managed to untangle Marvin's claws than he was forced to employ them to fend off a large tree branch that would otherwise have crushed the two explorers, exoskeleton or no. Eventually, and with much effort, 
they reached the relative safety of the farmhouse's porch. As they made it up the steps and out of reach of the nearby plants, the two collapsed in exhaustion, panting. Well, Gert was panting at any rate. Marvin just had a few bubbles forming around his mandibles, but they were both quite flushed with the exertion. <sighs> what? What? What was that all about? I have no idea. Are you all right? I think so. So his cloth certainly came in handy. So did yours. I had no idea you could move so... Gert, don't be alarmed, but I don't think we're alone. Gertrude turned to see what Marvin was talking about and saw that seated on the porch in a rocking chair was a decaying corpse whose partially denuded skull gave the distinct impression that it was grinning at them. <gasps> well, that's certainly unsettling. Fay, Marvin, what's that that is holding? With no small trepidation, Mavin looked in for a closer look. It, it looks like whoever this is, they died clutching some kind of a rock. You, you don't suppose? I think it must be. If that is not the rock we are looking for, then it is fun heck of a coincidence. Do you still have that lead box that we brought? If this is what Ezekiel's grimoire seemed to suggest... There's bound to be all kinds of energy coming off of that meteorite, and I'd hate to turn back into a human only to die of radiation poisoning. Marvin used one of his claws to gingerly pry the hunk of rock from the dead farmer's clutches and snapped it into the special container they had prepared. As soon as the box's lid closed, the surrounding plant life seemed to slump back to the ground, as though relieved to no longer be beholden to the space rock's deadly influence. After a few minutes' rest, Gert and Marvin began their long trek back to Stephen King's truck. For the first time since Gert had found him, he felt certain that the ceremony El Hazard had proposed would be a success. Perhaps it was because of this newfound sense of optimism that he and Gert didn't notice the unearthly creature whose eyes had seemingly luminescent mismatched irises which tracked their movements from the underbrush. They had nearly reached the truck when the pale, ape-like creature leapt from the bushes and rushed towards the unsuspecting pair. Needless to say, they were startled. Muffin! Look out! I say, you wouldn't happen to have a lozenge on you. Um, I, I think I have a fisherman's friend in one of these pockets. Uh, uh, yes, uh, he here you go. Much obliged. I'm terribly sorry. Where are my manners? My name's Martens, Wallace Martens. My family has lived in these woods for simply ages. I just wanted to thank you for whatever it is you just did that lifted that curse that had been afflicting Gardner's farm. It's been just beastly for us these past few generations. Why, just last week, my cousin, Uncle Dad, was mauled to death by a bloody pumpkin. Can you imagine? Your cousin, uncle... Yes, we're a very close-knit family. Aunt Grandma was absolutely devastated. Scarcely ate a bite of the old codger, poor dear. Uh, yes, for, uh, my condolences, but I'm afraid we really must be going. Oh, absolutely. Wouldn't dream of keeping you. Just couldn't let you leave without expressing my gratitude. 
If there's anything the Martens clan can ever do for you and yours, you simply must let us know. <coughs> oh, and thanks again for the lozenge as well. These things are simply tremendous. Gertrude and Marvin headed back to the barn, more than a little shaken by the events of the day. But, as they got further away from Gardner's farm, their mood slowly shifted from unease to relief, and eventually elation. With the retrieval of the meteorite, Marvin's restoration seemed all but assured, and all that it had cost them was one of Gertrude's lozenges. That night at the barn, they decided to celebrate. Ezekiel! Uh, two more gadgets and two more shots, please. Coming right up, Gertrude. Thank you, Ezekiel. I am quite drunk, and, and I wish to continue being so. All right, Gert. <laughs> if you aren't the cunningest thing I ever seen, well, you aren't far off. Yes, yes, I know. I'm adorable. Most cobalts just look like scaly piles of garbage, but for some reason, us seafaring types just... We look like leprechauns in ponchos. Oh, nobody steal my lucky charms! Sorry, Ezekiel. <laughs> Maybe I should get some giant rubber bands for these things. Well, it's nice to see you two in such high spirits. I've got some more good news for you. Last night, Larry called me down the station to inform me that he got that book you're after. He ought to be back tomorrow morning. But, but that means we have all the ingredients. If Al Hazard can find the right incantation, I'll, I'll be cured! Oh, congratulations, Marvin! This is wonderful news! You'll be back aboard the Lavinia in no time! I can't wait to... Uh, Marvin? Marvin, are you okay? But Marvin was not alright. As Garrett was speaking, a flash of light from the disco ball had caught his compound eye and provoked a rather peculiar reaction. Marvin? Who's Marvin? Where, where, where am I? Get, get me back to the ocean! Get me back to the ocean! We eventually managed to calm him down a bit and get him down cellar to his saltwater tank. After a few minutes, he returned to normal. He was more than a little embarrassed about the ordeal and played it off as the result of partying a bit too hard. But Gert remained unnerved. She confided in me later that night that she was worried that the longer Marvin remained a lobster, the less of his former personality remained. Problem was, she wasn't entirely sure that the changes were for the worse. As a human, the Marvin she had observed was taciturn, and often at times quite mean-spirited. The lobster she knew now was kind and gentle. I tried to reassure her that her friend's personality wouldn't be transformed along with his body, but the truth was, between the recent episode with the disco ball and the information Gerd had just given me, I had some misgivings of my own. The next morning, while I slumbered in my coffin, Gertrude and Marvin were nursing their respective hangovers when Larry returned. Larry, you have returned. Uh, can I get you a cup of coffee? Yeah, I'm back all right. But after what I just gone through, I'm going to need something a damn sight stronger than coffee. I keep a bottle of moonshine stashed under the bar. Go grab that for me. What's wrong, Larry? Did something go wrong with the book? Oh, I got your damn book, Marvin. And everything's wrong with it. That's better. Look, I'm sorry, Marvin. I didn't mean to snap at you like that. You're a good shit. And here's your book. The King in Yellow. I wish to Christ I'd never laid eyes on that damn thing. Oh, Larry, you didn't read it, did you? 
The play is fabled to provoke madness in any who read past the first act. I know I shouldn't have, and believe me, I wish I hadn't. I was holed up in Braintree at my good-for-nothing brother-in-law's house, and I was bored out of my gourd. Curiosity got the better of me. You know how they say curiosity killed the cat? Well, better it would have killed this wolf than for me to have seen the things I did between those thrice-damned covers. Then you were made mad by the contents of the book? Mad? I was made fucking furious. There was no character development. The romance is shoehorned in. It's got more adverbs than a goddamn Hardy Boys novel. And the worst part is, at the end of the third act, the main character wakes up and it was all a goddamn dream. Can you believe that shit? Then the book didn't summon any unspeakable horror that your mind just couldn't comprehend? What? No, it was just really shitty is all. Like, really shitty. I grabbed a couple of other books while I was down in Ackham. You, you can take those too. I think I'm off reading for a while. If you didn't need that thing for your little change room up party, you had to toss it in the barrel like the rubbish it is. Ugh. As the day of the scheduled rendezvous with Alhazard approached, a sort of general malaise set in over the disco barn. After their initial night of jubilance upon recovering the media, Marvin and Gertrude had been acting uncharacteristically distant from one another and Gert had taken to spending more of her days aboard the Lavinia. The afternoon before his ceremony was to occur, I asked Marvin about the cause of his glum demeanor. Marvin, I was wondering, what's the cause of your glum demeanor? Are you worried that your pal Alhazard's mumbo-jumbo won't work? Actually, Ezekiel, it's quite the opposite. I'm a little bit worried that it will. I don't quite follow. Well... The last few weeks have actually been quite pleasant, and I'm worried that once I change back into a human, I'll go back to not being able to see Gert anymore. It's been so nice to have someone to talk to. Part of me almost thinks that I'd be better off if Alhazard never returns from the Stygian depths of the sea. I'm sorry, the, the what depths of the sea? Stygian. It's a word Alhazard used. Used it quite a few times, actually. You don't say. Marvin, I think something just fell into place for me. Perhaps when Gertrude comes in tonight, we should all have a little chat about your little Atlantean pal. The next night at midnight, Marvin headed out to the beach where he had first encountered the Atlantean priest three weeks prior. When he arrived, he saw that Alhazard had erected a large ceremonial altar, which was carved with ornate runes. Atop the platform, alongside an assortment of braziers, powders, forceps, and other less identifiable paraphernalia, Marvin noticed the amulet that had first caught his attention what felt like many years ago. With no small effort, Marvin turned his attention from the purple gemstone and focused on Alhazard, who stood behind the platform expectantly. Greetings, friend Marvin Turklewood. Well met! I almost didn't recognize you in that trench coat and fedora. What a versatile disguise! As you can see, I have fulfilled my promise to you, and all is in readiness. The research required to prepare this ancient rite was truly a Herculean task, filled with great daring and cunning on my part. We must discuss the details in greater length at another time, for it is a tale worthy of chronicle. But for now, I'm sure you're anxious to get the ceremony underway. I trust you were able to complete the trifling tasks I charged you with without undue difficulty. 
Oh, I've got the stuff all right. Excellent. Then let us proceed. In fact, I even had a little extra time on my claws to do a bit of research on my own. Oh, well, I applaud your diligence, but that really wasn't necessary. As you can see, I have the situation well in hand. Now, if you would just approach the dyers and relinquish the acquisitions... One of the more interesting books I stumbled across had been filed alongside the King in Yellow. It was an anthropological guide to Atlantean rituals. Yes, yes. Fascinating reading, I'm sure. Now step forward and hand me the items. One thing that caught my attention was that in the Atlantean clergy, there's no such position as a Grand Vizier. Well, you must have had an older version of the text. I'm sure it's in the revised editions. But even more interesting was the fact that there is no transformation ritual that requires the type of objects you sent me to collect. Don't be preposterous. Of course there is. Why else would I... There is, however, a certain blasphemous ceremony requiring these three specific items of power. But that ceremony would summon the Elder God Cthulhu from his unearthly slumber destroying the entire eastern seaboard and bestowing great power on the individual performing the rite. It would also require the sacrifice of a large and powerful sentient sea creature. Oh, there is? Well, then we'll just have to make sure we don't accidentally perform that ceremony, won't we? Oh, don't worry. I've taken steps to ensure that no one will be enacting that ritual, Alhazamid. Al Hazard, such a mouthful that name. If only there was something shorter I could call you, like, like Al, maybe, or, or Howard. I'm sorry, I don't follow. You know, Howard, as in Howard Philip Lovecraft, your real name. Ezekiel said you were the only person he'd ever heard use the word Stygian in conversation. Um, Lovecraft, Lovecraft. Oh, like the brilliant and world-famous author of macabre fiction. Why, that's very flattering, but no, no, I'm just a lowly ancient Atlantean grand vizier who has no aspiration greater than repaying the kindness of the humble fisherman who once freed him from his curse. Now, if you just gaze at this amulet and approach the altar, then perhaps we could put all this silliness behind us. Against his better judgment, Mavin could not help but take just one furtive glance at the purple gem and the amulet that swung hypnotically from H.P. Lovecraft's outstretched hand. Once he did, he was powerless to stop himself from shambling towards the dais, to do as the duplicitous author suggested. Fortunately, it was then that a familiar figure emerged from the surf and stood behind Howard, breaking Mavin's concentration. Gah! A gnome! Mr. Lovecraft, if your intentions towards Marvin are so benign, then how do you explain this vat of melted butter behind the altar? Um... Or this bib with a picture of a lobster on it that you have clearly labeled Marvin? Oh, well, that's just a... Ah, <sighs> shit. Where did this goblin come from? She's not a goblin. She's a clabouterman. Her name is Gertrude, and she's my best friend. Thank you, Marvin. Likewise. Uh, but to be fair, Cobalt is more or less the same thing as a goblin. How touching. 
Marvin, would you be so kind as to direct your attention back to this amulet and then rip your friend, I'm sorry, your best friend's limb from limb? That's a good hideous lobster creature. Marvin fought against Howard's command with every ounce of his being, but he still found himself crawling slowly forward. Gertrude, was it? You were a fool to confront me alone if you knew of the power I exerted over this creature. <laughs> but Mr. Lovecraft, who said that I was alone? Oh, Martin, sis, I think it is time for you to earn those lozenges. Pardon me. From the shadows behind one of the larger boulders, three terrifying ape-like creatures emerged from hiding and rushed towards H.P. Lovecraft. Six gnarled and hairsuit claws reached out and clutched the startled rider, holding him in place while Gertrude snatched the amulet from his hand and smashed it on the rocky shore. While Wallace Martens and his brothers restrained Howard, Gert tied him to the same altar upon which he had planned to murder Marvin. I just can't thank you and your process enough for your help, Follis. Here's a bag of fishermen's friends for each of you. <coughs> Think nothing of it, Gertrude. It's the least we can do. Is there any other way we might be of assistance? No, I think we can take it from here. Well then, Reginald, Winthrop, and I will be on our way. Come along, lads. I spotted a dead raccoon on the way here that looked simply scrumptious. What, what do you intend to do with me? Without my aid, you'll spend the rest of your pathetic life as a crustacean. Oh, it's not such a bad life at that. I does for what we're going to do with you. We aren't going to do anything. A strange gurgling noise issued from Marvin's mandibles. Within seconds, hundreds of lobsters started teeming out of the surf and began crawling towards the altar. These guys on the other claw? Them you might have to worry about. Goodbye, Howard. Marvin adjusted his trench coat and fedora and extended a claw towards Gertrude. She took it in her tiny hand and wordlessly the two friends walked away into the chill autumn night. As they departed, the horde of lobsters Marvin had summoned descended upon Howard's altar and swarmed over the terrified author. Marvin? Marvin? Come back here! I command you to come back here, you aquatic scum! No, not you, little guys. You, you seem delightful. In fact, this isn't that dissimilar to a fantasy I've always had. It's just that... Ah! Ah! Those, those claws! Ah! Be careful what you wish for! Ah! Howard's cries ran long into the night. By the time the sun rose over Booth Bay Harbor the next morning, very little remained of the once proud author. For well lobsters may not be the fastest scavengers, they are among the most thorough. And although it's possible that it may be entirely unrelated to the events of that fateful October night, the fact remains that the lobsters harvested in the fall of 1977 remain to this day amongst the largest and most succulent the locals say they've ever tasted. And there you have it. Wait, so that's it? What happened to Gert and Marvin? Oh, they remain close friends to this day. Gertrude still works on the Lavinia and does her best to protect the boat and its sailors. Marvin often swims alongside or clings to the hull of the ship and keeps Gert company on the longer trips. So Marvin never got turned back into a human? Oh, the person I knew as Marvin was never a human being to begin with. I thought you'd figured that out. Then what was he? 
he was a lobster. Obviously. What? But you said he was six feet tall. Well, he was a big lobster. The thing about lobsters is, if they don't get caught, they just keep growing. Largest one that's ever been hauled in was a little under 50 pounds. But Marvin's proof that there are obviously much larger ones out there. But he could talk. Well, scientists reckon that that 50-pounder was a little over 100 years old. Judging by his size, Marvin must have been at least five or six times that. You're bound to pick a few things up over the course of half a millennium. I'd be more surprised if he couldn't talk. It might just never have occurred to him to try without Howard's interference. I figure Howard probably stumbled across him during one of his, shall we say, extracurricular trips to the ocean. Howard had been extending his life through minor sacrifices, murder and drifters and the like, ever since he faked his death back in the 30s. When he found Marvin, he must have realized what an opportunity he had on his hands. Magically speaking, Howard was too much of a duffer to manage an actual transformation. But hypnotizing a lobster, that was another matter. But what about the sailor that disappeared? Lovecraft couldn't have hypnotized Gert and the entire crew, could he have? He didn't need to. There really was a human sailor named Marvin Turklewood who served on Gert's boat. Howard murdered him soon after he encountered the giant lobster. That's why the real Marvin was able to see Gert on his last day aboard the Lavania. Once he was disposed of, it was an easy matter for Howard to outfit the mesmerized crustacean in the dead sailor's clothes, which lent credence to the hypnotic suggestion convincing the lobster he was really a sternman named Marvin. Once he believed that, he had no choice but to do Howard's bidding, if he ever wanted to get his old life back. But of course, Marvin couldn't be changed back into a human, any more than I can be changed back into Gloria Gaynor. Or you could be changed back into a reporter. Now, how's about you tell me what you're really doing here? I... I work for Miskatonic University. I'm following up on a lead that some of our missing library books might have ended up here sometime in the late 70s. I was sent to see if they're still here. They're quite valuable. Oh, is that all? Well, why didn't you say so? Larry should have taken those back ages ago. I think he was still angry about the ending of The King in Yellow and tried to put the very idea of the book out of his mind. I think it's in a box of his old stuff down cellar. I'll go get it for you. But if I might offer you a couple pieces of advice... First of all, no matter how tempted you get, don't go reading that book. It is just truly awful. And secondly, if you ever find yourself in these parts again, don't go misrepresenting yourself. I have nothing but respect for librarians and the important work they do, but seeing through disguises is thirsty work, and I don't drink. Moxie. Oh, neither do I. It tastes terrible. It really is a dreadful soft drink. It's like they tried to make Dr. Pepper out of Tom's of Maine toothpaste. I feel like it must be a holdover from New England's puritanical roots that if we make a sugary drink, we have to make it taste like medicine so that it's somehow less sinful. It is just a spectacularly bad-tasting soda. I, uh... Something like a zombie, but not so slow. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn 2. The Disco Call of Cthulhu. Or 
The Twerking Fear. It starred Mimi Harris as Tracy Angstrom, Miles Stokes as H.P. Lovecraft, Corey Whitney as Stephen King, Brian Mumford as Wallace Martens, and me, Nathaniel Hubbard, as Larry the Werewolf, Marvin the Lobsterman Lobsterman, Gertrude the Klebouterman, the radio announcer, and Reginald and Winthrop Martens. The song Aria Carmina was by Kevin McLeod, and special thanks to Ezekiel P. Shadowmaven, who appeared as himself. Tales from the Haunted Disco Barn is written, produced, edited, and fuck, I don't know, catered by me, Nathaniel Hubbard. But you can call me Hub. Happy Halloween! And it's a poolside smash. Why, it's bigger than the mash.